Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. And I'd like to say a word of welcome uh, back for the Hunsburgers. And we've been praying uh, for them and very thankful that they're here with us today. Uh, they, they split their time between Lake Charles, Louisiana, and uh, they've been under a lot of stress regarding the hurricanes that have uh, come up, the, up into the Gulf uh, this uh, fall. And uh, just uh, continue to pray for them and also the community of Lake Charles as well as they get back and clean up. So very glad they could be up here, though, worship with us. I'm going to read Hebrews 10. I'm going to back up into last week's text, verse 19, and I'm going to read straight through to the end of the chapter so you can see how the last two paragraphs of thought connect to what we heard last Sunday. It's important for us to see the, the flow of thought. And that way I'm not preaching out of context. It's important for us to, to hear the context. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ever set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You had joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and preserve their souls. 
Lord, as I prepare to open this text, I ask that my own heart would be prepared to be able to communicate the truths that are in this passage, and may I be able to do so with compassion and clarity, and, and may we take, uh, may we be hearers of the word this morning, and that we would be doers of the word this morning, that we would be drawing near to you with a bold confidence. And so, Father, thank you for what your Holy Spirit will do in our hearts today. And so we ask for continued grace as we anticipate your coming again. In your name we pray. Amen. So how many here have heard of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? You can raise your hand. Okay. All right. There's a good number of us. So um, actually, it's a sermon that was preached originally in Northampton, Massachusetts, back in the summer of... 1741. It was preached by my friend, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, the first time Sinners was uh, preached, it was actually surprisingly met with a very lackluster response. It really didn't do much the first time it was preached. Why might that have been? Well, one scholar actually suggested that the muted response probably came and due that the first manuscript was milder, it was more pastoral in tone because he was speaking to his own people. He was speaking to his own flock that he ministered with. And uh, actually, if you think about it, when I had some hard truths to share last Sunday, I used terms like loved ones, right? I don't know if you remembered that in the sermon, but I I addressed you as loved ones because I'm acquainted with your weaknesses, your joys, your sufferings, and, and by the same manner, Edwards probably would have had a similar approach speaking to those he, he lived with week after week. A month later, the results of the second draft of the sermon, though, had become entirely legendary. In fact, he was a guest speaker at a, another congregation in Enfield, Connecticut, and when he preached that sermon, people began to weep. People began to wail. People began to cry, and actually, he had to quiet the congregation, and it ended up that he could not even complete the sermon. The Holy Spirit had started to do a work within that congregation, and there was a great conversion that occurred at the completion of the sermon. It was an astonishing effect. In fact, many other congregations in the Connecticut area started to hear about the reviving work that was starting in that congregation, and, and it seemed as though the Great Awakening had begun. That was the very first Great Awakening. Now, I bring this up because actually in this text that I read, you can see the, the theme of the title of that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, Jonathan Edwards didn't preach from this text. He actually preached from another text. But he used a lot of the images that exist in this text. When he preached that sermon, he had very graphic images, very graphic images that would have like impressed upon people the imminency of needing to decide for Christ. He used words like black clouds of God's wrath. He, he described the great waters of, 
of God's wrath being dammed like a, like, a, like a dam of water about ready to break upon people. He talked about God's bow of wrath being bent like a bow with an arrow. And he talked about people's wickedness being like making people heavy as lead over suspension of a pit. And unconverted men walking over a pit as if they were working, walking over hell on a rotted cloth covering. His most memorable phrase was this. God holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider. Those are very graphic images. And yet, I think what's often lost is that with equal graphic image, he also contrasted the the extraordinary opportunity that exists in Christ's wide door of mercy. That is often lost because the title is so graphic, sinners falling into the hands of an angry God, that actually this part is often passed over. He said in his sermon that Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. You know, most equate Edwards' sermon with, with fire and brimstone. I doubt that many actually associate it with mercy and grace. Edwards' sermon, as I said, comes thematically from this text, and I actually resisted the temptation to preach a sinner-style sermon this morning because of a similar love and compassion for you, my flock. I actually decided that I couldn't just preach the first paragraph with all of its warnings. I also had to preach the, fa- the last paragraph with its rewards. It's important for us to see together the warnings and the rewards of drawing near uh, to God. And so this morning... Uh, We're going to be looking at, yes, some terrifying warnings, but there is also gospel hope in this text for us and those we love in the community around us. But we need to understand how knowing and knowing God intimately makes all the difference. There is a key word in this text, and at this point we are going to get into the text And there is a key word in this text, it's the word know, to know. It comes up in verse 30. Would you look at verse 30 with me? In verse 30, after showing the terrifying consequences of abandoning God, he reverts in verse 30 and says, well, for we know him who said... This word know here could legitimately be translated as see. So let me put that into the context. It says, for we see him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, how do we see him who we've not seen? How do we do that? How do we see God in such a way Well, the answer to that is is that this is a kind of sight that only comes through hearing in order to see. A hearing in order to be able to see with the heart, with the soul, that which does not exist presently in front of the physical eye. 
cross. You know, Jesus in his ministry would often call people and say, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Remember that? He would say, um, let him who has eyes to see, see. Jesus was calling people to respond with the eyes of faith from the heart to see what he was saying. And Jesus was calling people to respond. Respond with eyes of faith. And that kind of knowing is drastically different than the other word, know, that's seen in verse 26. Excuse me, verse 25. Yes, verse 26, my apology. My page is flipped in this, in this text. But in verse 26, it says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that word knowledge is an important contrastive word, even though it sounds like it should be the same word. You see the word seeing as knowing. Here you have knowledge as skill, as familiarity. This is knowledge of truth, being skillful with it, of having um, an ability to, uh, some familiarity with it. And the difference here is very important. People can know and have a knowledge of the truth, but with the eyes of the heart, they actually don't see. And there is a big difference between the two. Knowledge of the truth is like skill and familiarity, but it doesn't go down deeply into the heart. And the difference is significant because there are many who hear the word, they're not doers because they cannot actually see the one who's speaking. And so, and we look at these two paragraphs, what we're going to see is contrastive. There's two different kinds of knowings. First, in the first paragraph, verse 26 to 29, we are seeing a kind of knowing which should create a fearful expectation of judgment. There is a kind of knowing that should create a fearful expectation of judgment. Verse 26 through 29. Verse 26 describes this. Uh, he says, there is a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 26. Let me read that again. If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A fury of fire. A fury of fire. This actually alludes to something that occurred in the Old Testament. It alludes, and if a Jewish reader was reading this, they would perhaps remember a time in which God's fire leapt upon people in judgment. It's actually terrifying language if you think about it. Being close to the fire, and many of us enjoy bonfires, and we stand particularly close to a bonfire, but we don't imagine that the fire would actually leap out upon us and consume us. That's the image that's being described here. In fact, it goes back to a time period, and we have discussed this earlier in the book of Hebrews, a time in which when in the wilderness there was a rebellion by a man by the name of Korah. Korah 
wanted to have a prominent place within the assembly of Israel. He felt it inappropriate that Aaron and Moses would be the only representatives of God before the people. He wanted to have a place, and his pride called him and 250 other people to come and communicate with, with Moses his displeasure. Well, in that moment, they were invited to trial, if you will, to go into the holy place and actually offer fire before the Lord. They were each given a censer to burn incense. And as they, they carried their incense, fire from off the incense leapt back upon them and consumed them. It was their pride that had caused them to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And pride causes us to think so much of ourselves that we do really ridiculous things. Pride is almost like a narcotic that can cause us to think that we can do that which is humanly not possible. Pride can actually cause us to think that we can, as it were, walk on air or handle fire. But we can't. And pride can actually cause us to, to fall away, to apostatize from the faith. Apostasy is the purposeful turning away from the knowledge of the truth. You have the truth, you know the truth, but you're not led by the truth. You're led by your own heart. You're led by your own pride. How many people would know the name Josh Harris? Josh Harris. When I was a young man, I had read some of his material. I actually read the book. Maybe some of you have read this book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Has anyone heard of that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye? Well, I thought of him perhaps as being an up-and-coming evangelical leader, but in fact, he even pastored a church in Maryland of about 5,000 people. But something happened in the last year where he began to actually repudiate everything that he had been taught from his upbringing. I personally believe that he was going through a marriage crisis and something really broke down and it actually turned his heart away from Christ. It shocked me that that occurred. He was almost the last person I thought that would abandon and fall away from the faith. And that's exactly what apostasy is. It's the revealing of unbelief. He, he actually was never, ever truly born again, enlightened from the heart. Josh Harris, and I, and I don't say this lightly, he revealed to the world that he had fallen away and apostatized. He lost faith in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? that he, he lost faith in the blood sacrifice of Christ. He turned his back, actually, on the only thing that can have brought him into a right place with God. In this text, he ought to only anticipate the full fury of God's fire. And that's sad. It's disheartening. Um, it says in this text... Uh, verse 26, he, has to, he should have the expectation 
of judgment and the fury of fire that comes that will consume the adversary. He no longer considers himself a friend with God. He is actually considering himself the enemy of God. In this text, there is a remarkable phrase in verse 26. says that he ought not take any consideration that he has any no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for him. What in the world does this mean? A lot of times when we read this text, or some people have read this text, they thought, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that they can, there can never be a re-sacrifice? And I don't believe that that's the actual implication. I believe what the author here is saying is that there really is no other sacrifice available to him. There's no other offering for sins. And I see this. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 18, look at verse 18. You see this phrase repeated the first time. And he's, the, the writer says that where there is forgiveness of sins, or these, there is no longer any offering for sin. When he wrote those words, he was saying that there is no need for any other offering, because there's no other offering that is effective. And so when I come to this phrase in verse 26, what I'm seeing is that if a person is intent on sinning deliberately, walking away from God, they have no, they can't take their hope in anything else, because there's nothing else that remains that could provide atonement for them. So in other words, they've walked away from their only potential hope of relationship with God. I don't see the end of the road for Josh Harris. I don't see the end of the road for anyone who walks away. Only God sees that. It may be that in his own heart he does convert and he does have the eyes of his heart awakened and opened and he comes back to God. I pray for that. I pray for anyone who tries to deny the name of Christ. But there is something very dangerous here. There's something very dangerous. And I want us to just very briefly, this is, this is a very short section of the sermon, but see a fourfold progression of how apostasy unfolds and, and, and the effect of it. There are four different phrases that are used in this paragraph that kind of describes a person who's walking away from the blood sacrifice of Christ. And the first is a person who goes on sinning deliberately. They go on sinning deliberately. If you have a King James Bible, you probably see the words, if we sin willfully, in your translation. And that's a good translation. Because either way, it is an attempt to help us to see that, a, that this is not an occasional kind of, I've sinned and all I've lost my salvation. That's not the emphasis. Rather, this is the willful, deliberate repudiation of God by your life, by your voice. This is, I'm, I'm abandoning God and I want nothing more to do with him type of talk. It's calculated, it's persistent, and the only sacrifice which can remove the defilement has been repudiated. It's, it's, I don't want anything more to do with it. 
So apostasy can actually manifest itself as the persistent refusal to repent of one's sin. I want to draw to your attention to the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 verse 8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's a heavy warning. But it ought to help us to understand that if someone is persisting, making it the habitual pattern of their life to be doing that which they know is directly against the holiness of God, they ought to be having a fearful expectation of judgment to come. It's a heavy warning. It actually ought to have us all thinking about the claim of knowing the truth and yet deliberately going on sinning. There can be a hardness that occurs within the heart regarding a particular sin choice. And we can deliberately go on sinning in contravention to what we know God would want us to do. And in those moments, we ought not to be having a great confidence in our own selves. We ought to be humbling ourselves and turning over our sin to the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the first, going on deliberately sinning. The second is trampling. This, is, this has the effect of trampling the Son of God. In verse 28, we read these words, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And I stop there. Trampling God's Son. There's an allusion here to the Old Covenant. A man or woman, if they were to set aside the covenant, they would actually walk away from the God of Israel and start worshiping other gods. And it became aware, and there were several witnesses that saw and observed this. The command was to take them outside the town and to stone them to death with stones. It's a graphic illustration. It's a graphic example here and a terrible irony. Because when a person tramples the Son of God by persisting in sin, what they're doing is, ironically, they're going to find that they have not trampled the Son of God, but God will trample them. The Scriptures state that the Son of Man, the Son of God, is sitting in heaven waiting until His enemies are made a footstool. You think that you will prevail in willful sin, and our society is set against God. They think that they will prevail, but they're fooling themselves. How bad would it be for someone to consider that, yes, I prayed the prayer when I was three years old, and then by their life repudiate God? 
how terrible it would be for them to one day realize that they are the enemy of God. It's critically important that we realize that our actions are a reflection of the hearts. It's a terrible irony. And to trample God's Son is actually to actively participate in the crucifixion. It's to stand in judgment over the Son of God. And so that's the second graphic illustration here in this text of, of apostatizing and, and pride causing one to, to uh, abandon the faith. The third here is um, there is a profaning of the blood covenant that occurs. Verse 29, I continue on where it says, um, do you think will, um, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? See, an apostate is taking the blood which is so precious and that which provides him the opportunity to be, to be clean and to be... And what he does is he defiles it. And a Jewish reader, as he's perhaps he or she is reading this text, would probably be reminded of the atrocities that occurred 200 years before Jesus Christ came into the world. They would have remembered that during the Greek occupation of Israel... There was a Greek general whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he invaded Jerusalem. And you know what he did? He entered into Jerusalem. He erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. And in the temple, he slaughtered a pig and poured out that on the incense table before the Holy of Holies. What a profane thing to do to the blood sacrifices that would have come before the Lord God Almighty. And so these are the images that would have been brought up in the minds. Now, I, it's hard for us to kind of put ourselves in those shoes, but it would almost be like to us if someone were to invade New York City and take down the Statue of Liberty and instead erect a statue of Stalin or Lenin in its place. How horrifying that would be to us. Profaning the blood covenant. Profaning the blood covenant is a horrific thing to do. The last progressive stage here is outraging the spirit of grace. Verse 29, the last phrase that's connected in this series, he says... Um, the effect would be that you would, you've outraged the spirit of grace. Verse 29, outraging the spirit of grace. This phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Zechariah 12, verse 10. Maybe you've heard this in another context of prophecy in which the, the world... In the end, when Christ returns, will look upon him whom they have pierced, and then they will weep over him. And in Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, God will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. 
You know, when Pentecost occurred, many looked upon Christ whom they had pierced, and many wept over their sin. When Peter preached, there was an outpouring of grace and mercy. The Spirit converted many who heard that they had murdered their Messiah, and they wept. I think it's helpful for us to realize that Zechariah's prophecy has a near and intermediate and a far resolution. At Pentecost, many turned. And that gives us hope that one day, Israel as a nation will turn. But the, the, this analogy is, is intended to, to, by the writer, to help us to understand how dangerous it is to spurn and outrage God's mercy and grace when he pours out the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we believe and we trust in the mercy of God. We believe that he is long-suffering, but God's patience has a limit. And I believe that this is the most disturbing, it is the most, most disturbing manifestation of apostasy. For we can come to a point where like Pharaoh or the Israelites, we outrage the spirit of grace and there is no more grace available. I don't know when that occurs, but in God's infinite wisdom and knowledge, he knows. It may be that when Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God stepped away because he had outraged the spirit of grace. The Israelites were on the very edge of the promised land, and God said, you're not going to enter into my rest. They had outraged the spirit of grace. And the divine decree was issued that they would not enter into. I don't make the divine decree. God makes that divine decree. That's why it's so horrifying. We have no control over that. If we are persisting away from God in a spirit of rebellion, we ought to not expect anything other than the fearful expectation of judgments. Think of the horror of being led into the wilderness, told that you're never going to enter into the promised land, but yet you've got to still live for 40 years, and you know in advance that you're going to die? That's like a living death. You might in that moment think and wish for euthanasia. There's no point of going on and living. You're like a walking death. And that's the, the, the kind of the emphasis here is that if you abandon the blood of Jesus Christ and you walk out from underneath, what you're doing is revealing that you just had a superficial, a familiar knowledge and acquaintance with God. Your, your, your heart doesn't really see him. You don't see him as the one who says, I, I will avenge, and I will repay. And so in this text, he concludes by saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, because he's alive, and it's not contingent upon whether you think he's alive or not. He's alive. We might have a ton of biblical facts in our heads 
And we might even, we might even know the ABC of the, of the gospel message. We may have even prayed the prayer. But if the eyes of the heart are not enlightened, look at verse 32. It says, but recall the former days after you were enlightened. If, if that hasn't occurred and the, the, the knowing doesn't involve an actual seeing of God, you've got nothing to, to hope in. You've actually got the fearful anticipation of coming judgments. So I want us to see how important it is that we, we not just simply trust in our skill or familiarity with God. We need to, we need to be asking for the, the impression of the Holy Spirit within our hearts so that we may see Him. And this is why I couldn't preach just this text. We have to recognize a different kind of knowing which brings a reward. In verse uh, 30, we see that word knowing come into play again. For we see Him who said. Those who have been born again see Him and respond to Him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And so knowing His audience, He knows that not everyone are apostate. They're, not, they're fearful of following Christ, even if it means that they're going to suffer persecution. And so He encourages them in verses, verse 32 to the end, and He says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. And he goes on to list various things that they should take note of and that they have reasonable expectation of reward. And so verse 30 through 39, I see a kind of knowing that should create a hopeful expectation of reward. You know, one of the greatest, greatest points of satanic oppression is that he would cause you to think that your Heavenly Father does not care about your devotion. Let me say it again. Satan doesn't want you to think that God cares about your devotion to Him. God doesn't desire holiness for holiness' sake. He desires it because He wants a single-minded relationship with you, because He loves you. God knows that in your single-minded devotion to Him, you're going to be filled with joy, and so He offers reward. He, he kind, of, kind of puts out there and says, you know what? You might not be able to see it. Well, I mean, I have children that sometimes can't anticipate um, good things, especially when they were younger. So we, we would offer some rewards, right? Kind of help them visualize, you know, obedience and the, the good things that would occur in their life if they follow and obey their parents. God does this for us too. He wants us to know that our devotion to Him matters. There's reward. That reward is actually relationship with Him. Have you ever heard of the law of diminishing returns? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it goes like this. One slice of pizza is good, 
and then so you have another one, right? After two pieces of pizza, you may not enjoy the third piece as much as you enjoyed the first two. So you're in this indecision moment, and you actually reach for a fourth, maybe, if you don't have good self-control. And you have a fourth, and at that point, you're probably done because the reward that you thought was there is starting to diminish, right? But maybe you push it further and you eat a fifth piece of pizza. And now guess what? You're sick. You don't want to look at another piece of pizza for a month. The hopeful expectation of reward is gone. You don't want... It's gone. Yesterday we had a... uh, (laughs) a piano recital here, and we bought five dozen donuts. And uh, we had two dozen to take home that were left over. I don't want to see a donut again. (laughs) The expectation of reward diminished. What would it be like, though, if with every piece of pizza or donut, the next was even more enjoyable? What would that be like? Right? But that's exactly what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. He's the only joy which only intensifies with more exposure to Him. Isn't that the lesson of the water turned into wine? Do you remember what the host said? Who in the world offers their best wine last? But that's what Jesus does. He gives and gives and gives, and it gets better and more infinitely rich with every moment you spend with Him. There is no law of diminishing return with regard to Jesus. He is of infinite reward and value. Sin promises us joy, but in the end, the ways are the ways of what? Death. Jesus, on the other hand, said... That we ought to abide in the Father's love. And you might be able to finish this with me. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is a kind of knowing that creates a hopeful expectation of reward. If you know Jesus, you know that the more devotion and time you have with him, the better it will be doesn't matter what kind of persecution you're going to have in life. That doesn't matter because he matters. And that's why the writer here is saying, look, remember how it was when you were first born again? This is the, this is the quality that you should expect for the future. Recall the former days of perseverance, verse 32 to 33 says. This is the emphasis in verse 32 and 33. Recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. See, when you see that Jesus is so clearly worth it all, you'll be excited because you see him clearly. You will have joy in the midst of trials. I think precious few here in America 
have had to suffer what Christians in other countries have had to suffer? Why do they endure such persecution? Because they can see the reward. They can see the joy on the other side. There is definitely a trueness to suffering for Jesus. There is a joy that comes through that. Some of us, when we became believers, we experienced loss of friends, just exactly what this is describing for us, and suffered hardship in loss of relationships. Some of us still have a hard time talking with some family members. I understand that. My grandfather, for example, lost his friends when he became a believer. He, he used to have an evening, Friday evening, with, with hockey night, watching hockey night in Canada with the boys. And they left him. But God replaced it. God rewarded him with true friends within the congregation of his local assembly. God rewarded him in those days in which he had to persevere. And so the writer there recalls, says, you know, remember those former days when you persevered? You can do it now because God was gracious back then to provide you with reward. He also encourages them to recall the former manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 34, just very briefly, it says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession, an unabiding one. They had hope of a better possession. And I see in this verse, I see compassion, which is a fruit of the Spirit. I see joy, which is also a fruit of the Spirit. I also see hope in better possessions, which is also a fruit of the Spirit. And this all is coming out of their love and affection for, it says, the abiding one there. The abiding one, that's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the abiding one. Jesus is the one who is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is our great possession. And having that relationship with him caused fruit of the Spirit to bloom. The third thing that he gives here is to helpful, you know, to kind of encourage a proper knowing of God. And the third here is he encouraged them to recall the present promise of future grace. Verse 35, we read this, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. For my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now he says poignantly, don't throw away your confidence. Confidence is a forward-looking look. Confidence is looking to Christ returning and coming again. A future hope. But that's available for them in the present. Don't throw it away. When we're tempted to walk away and not abide in Christ, or not abide with his people... We need to remember the precious blood of Christ, which is our present 
promise of future reward. It is our present promise of future grace to us. Faith is an important part of our lives. You remember how hard it was back in April? Back in April of 2020? When we were told that we might not be able to leave our homes for a couple months? Do you remember that? We felt like it was going to be an eternity, right? It felt like maybe it would be always winter and never Christmas. But that's now how God talks to his children. When the world was telling us that, we were listening to oppression talk. It's not how God talks to his children. He gives them a vision for the future. And it's so important for us to live with a view of God's future reward for us in the present when it feels oppressive. He concludes this, this chapter by quoting from the book of Habakkuk in verse uh, 20, excuse me, 37 and 38. It's a paraphrase, actually. If you go back to the book of Habakkuk, you actually won't see these words exactly the same. And what he's doing is he's superimposing Christ upon the promise because he's reading Christ through the lens, his lens of the Old Testament. And he says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. There's a, a, maybe a way of thinking about this in our context. Perhaps I could paraphrase the paraphrase. Maybe we could think of it this way. Christ is coming again. Christ is coming. Mark it down. Write it like a billboard on the highway. That Christ is coming again. Keep on looking at that billboard, reminding yourself that he's coming again, and persevere and don't shrink back. God's not going to delay in his promise. It's like back in April when we thought like it would never, we'd never get out and have a church service again. We'd never get out and see our loved ones again. In the moment, it feels like forever. But the reality is, God's future grace is even available to us now through the eyes of faith. When we are tempted to despair, we can look out and see that God is keeping his promise to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's coming again. Mark it down. He's coming again. People may begin to mock us for standing firm in our day. And it may get very difficult for us as a church. We may begin to see some of those elements that we have heard described in the great tribulation. We may see the birth pains, if you will, of not being able to buy or sell like we had previously done. We may experience, to a limited degree, oppression for not being willing to stand by the biblical definitions of what gender means. What if public policy is such that 
There is an Equality Act that occurs that disrupts our capacity to speak verbally about the truth. What are we going to do? We have to have eyes of faith in order to persevere. We have to believe what we sing, that because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We have to ingrain in our thinking, in our heart, we have to have the eyes that see him living and reigning at the right hand of God. He's coming again. And so, as the writer here is coming to the conclusion of chapter 10, I summarize this main idea in this way, that God's children don't shrink back. Instead, they come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't shrink back. We actually, in our time of suffering and trial, we run to the throne of grace and we find help and strength in our time of need. In these days of uncertainty, we ought not to throw away our boldness. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in Christ. And if we truly know the Father, then we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Because we have a different kind of knowledge. We, we see Him for who He is. We have a knowledge that should create a hopeful expectation of reward. Not a knowledge which should create a fearful expectation of judgment. This morning I ask, are you a child of God? Are you born again? Do you truly know Christ as your personal Savior? If you do, take courage. Take courage in the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't throw it away. Don't think, well, that's such theological stuff. No, it's like the very reason you can have a relationship with God. It is precious. And we can come boldly into the presence of God because of it. And so in this text, it would be appropriate for us to realize that there is the possibility of falling into the hands of the living God through rebellion that would warrant judgment. But on the other hand, there is opportunity to fall into the hands of the living God in hope. We can fall into His hands and rest in Him because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let us keep our chin up. Let us keep persevering. Christ is still on the throne and He is coming again. Let us pray.